As we approach the end of the first two chapters of Luke, which detail for us uh, an introduction to Christ, to his childhood, and to all of the time before his public ministry began through the means of his forerunner, John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 3. This morning, we're going to read the last 12 verses. In fact, we'll actually start in verse 39, just to give us some context. So verse 39 through the end of the chapter, and then we will look at uh, the first part of verses 41 through 52. As we consider uh, an event from Jesus' childhood that was immensely significant for our understanding of who he is. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child, that is Jesus, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Many of us are very interested in the life of historical figures, in particular those who turned out to have a significant impact upon the world. It is interesting to read the life, the private life, and the upbringing about people who did great things or notable things in the world. This can even be true about those who turned out to do terrible things in the world, but it's also, and maybe especially the case for those who had a significant positive impact upon the world. And we don't just like to know the kinds of things recounting what they did in public and the things that they did uh, that everyone sort of knows about in just a collection of those things, but we want to know their background. And so people will investigate, biographers will go and research uh, various things about their childhood. What were their parents like? Where did they grow up? What was the home like in which they lived? And they may visit those places. They may uh, go and talk to people who lived in those areas. And they may read personal correspondence that was given between not only the individual person as a child, but those uh, of their parents as well, or any other relatives, just seeking to come up with all of the information that they can to give a window into what made this person who they were when they grew up. This is something that many people desire to such an extent that uh, at times those kinds of early stories have even been fabricated such as the famous story about the life of George Washington in his childhood when, according to the invented legend, he chopped down a cherry tree but felt bad about it and told his father, I cannot tell a lie, I chopped down the cherry tree. 
We want to know about the childhood and about what made people what they were. And so it is as well when we come to the person of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately for some who uh, must have such things, the scriptures don't give us many details about the childhood of Jesus once we get past the 40th day of his life and the events that we studied last time that took place upon his dedication at the temple. This hasn't stopped people from inventing all kinds of things that they purport Jesus to do, uh, such as doing amazing miracles and other things like that when he was a child. But of course, none of those things are recorded in scripture and there is no reason for us to believe any of those things with certainty. Um, but there is one window, one little look that we get into the life of Jesus between the age of 40 days and the age of 30 years. One account, and Luke has it for us, and it's here in this passage. Um, he, in this account of this only one instance in his childhood that is recorded for us, um, he does only a few simple things. But they're extremely significant things for our understanding, not only of who Jesus is, but also for his purpose on earth. The passage before us presents to us a, a transition from Jesus being an infant into Jesus as an adult. And it does so by showing his growth, uh, showing him at a sort of a midpoint between the times, between those two times, around age 12, slightly before the midpoint of his life. Um, it shows us his immense insight into the truth of God. And there's a shift from what his parents did or what someone did to Jesus or said about Jesus to what he himself does. And to what he himself chooses and to what he himself says. And this passage shows us Jesus' awareness, not only of his relationship with his heavenly father, but also of his very purpose upon the earth. Additionally, it describes for us in a summary statement at the end, his real humanity, which we will explore in great detail, not this week, but next. But here we find an insight into Jesus' understanding of himself, an authoritative, accurate understanding of who he is and why he is here upon the earth. And it comes as a shock to the people who knew him best. This is surprising, this is shocking, and it is maybe most important for us, it is revealing. It shows us who Jesus is and orients us for all that's going to come ahead as we learn about Jesus as an adult. Which is simply to say that none of these things that Jesus did later on in his life were an accident. They're not the fruit of Jesus somehow deciding when he turns 28 or 29, you know, I should really start to tell everybody that I'm the son of God. Jesus knows from an early age what he is here for and who he is. And this passage reveals to us a little bit of a window into Jesus even as a boy. And so we find in this passage, Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, in fact, pursuing both knowing and serving his heavenly father. Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, both pursues and knows his heavenly father. He is seeking him, and he does so in the same city where we have been looking at most of this opening section. Um, we begin by looking at the account in verse 41, and the first few verses tell us about how Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his family. This sets the scene. He goes to Jerusalem with his family. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. This was their custom to go and to do this. 
Now, many of you are familiar with the Passover feast. You understand what this is. Uh, you know what it is. And, uh, but just for those who may not be so oriented, the Passover feast was a memorial of God's deliverance of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It was instituted upon the occasion of the 10th and final plague against Egypt, in which God struck down the firstborn of all of Egypt, but he delivered everyone in Israel. And he did so by virtue of sending the angel of the Lord to go and to destroy all the firstborn. But when he did this, he made provision for Israel by telling them to bring a lamb into their home and to keep it there for a few days. And then at twilight on the 14th day of their first month, which is around March or generally April on our calendar, they were to kill the lamb at twilight. They were to eat it and then they were to eat it in haste. They were to eat it in a certain way because they were preparing to leave uh, Egypt and to depart and to run away from Pharaoh. Now, this was to be practiced every year in perpetuity in Israel. It was not often practiced. It was not practiced very much at all in Israel after, uh, after they came out of Egypt. But nonetheless, it was instituted in the law. Uh, and so it was to be done on the 14th day of their first month, again in uh, early spring. And it was followed by what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread which was another seven days that was kicked off on that occasion, which basically meant uh, about a week, a little bit more than a week. <clears throat> now, there are multiple years in Jesus' ministry where he himself would go up to Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover. It's recorded when he is an adult. Uh, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of significance to this because this is a time when everybody goes up. This was commanded for all the males to go up. As we see, often even women and children would go up. Those who were particularly devout, like Mary, would go up as well not just sending their husband. Uh, but this was kind of a national festival that all of them would keep, and it was a big deal, and everybody came together. But it was the custom of Jesus' parents to go to this. Um, now, Jesus went up, and this was his very first Passover, but again, it would not be his last. He went up. Sometimes people were wondering whether he would go up. Um, there was a question about whether he would go up during the last one of his life because they were seeking his life. But as we know from the Scripture, ultimately this Passover feast turned out to be none other than the very day when Jesus himself not only would go up and partake of the Passover feast, but would himself fulfill the ultimate significance of this Passover by being sacrificed himself on that very day. And we read about this not only in the narrative account of Jesus in the Gospels historically, but we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that the Apostle Paul says, Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. And so he explicitly is referred to in this way. Christ is the means by which we are spared from the judgment that we deserve. His blood washes away our sins and protects us from the just wrath of God that we deserve. Here, not all of that is clear yet to Mary and to Joseph as they go up to Jerusalem. But we do know that they were devout. And their piety is displayed by the fact that they all go. They went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. This was about an 80-mile journey from Nazareth. Three or four days, they would travel in large groups for safety from highway robbers who would otherwise maybe attack those uh, who were along the way if they were in small in number. But this was something they went up and they did every year according to their custom. And this year, something was different. 
When he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Now, we can't say for sure that this was his very first one, although it does seem likely. Um, Otherwise, he may have done what we read about later in the passage a previous occasion when he went up there. And also this was about the age when young men started to be brought up to the Passover as well. He was not quite of adult age, but he was getting close to his age of legal responsibility, which would come perhaps even at the age of 13 and often in preparation for that adulthood and responsibility of being, uh, of being a man, they would bring the son up to the feast to kind of get a, a practice run, if you will, so that he would know what is going on. Still, even though he's close to legal adulthood in terms of his responsibility that he would have, he is still referred to in this passage as, in verse 43, the boy Jesus. He is still officially a child. So they stayed the full number of days, it says, and then they returned. Verse 43, as they were returning after spending the full number of days, some would go up and stay for just the initial part of the Passover and not through the full Feast of Unleavened Bread or maybe for a couple of days, but Jesus' parents stayed the full week. But then they came back. Nothing notable happened at the feast, it appears, but something notable happened afterward. And this is what we read about starting in the middle of verse 43. Jesus remains at Jerusalem unnoticed. Jesus remains at Jerusalem unnoticed. The boy Jesus, Luke says, stayed behind in Jerusalem. There is a tone of emphasis here. He is a child He's not a little child anymore. In fact, the word that's used here is a different form of the Greek word that was used earlier in the chapter to describe him as a little child. Here he's simply a child, but he is a child nonetheless, not an adult. And so he stays behind. Now, of course, he didn't get lost as is so often the case, and many of you could think about childhood occasions when you were lost somewhere, you drifted off, you know, maybe you wandered off into a clothing rack at a store and your parents couldn't find you, or maybe someone forgot to pick you up after an event, or whatever it might be. We get lost sometimes, but this is not what happened. Jesus was entirely aware of what he was doing. He stayed behind on purpose, and he had a compelling reason for doing so. He didn't even need to apologize for what he was doing. There's no worry about being caught, no sinking feeling in his gut. Jesus is not kind of going beyond the realm of what his parents have told him to do. He's not violating their directives here. We find in verse 51 that he continues in subjection to them. Jesus is not a disobedient child bringing this about. He simply stays behind and he does so on purpose. But they don't even know themselves yet that he's still back there. It says his parents were unaware of it. Verse 43, his parents didn't know. Now, this is not because they were negligent or forgetful. They had a perfectly good explanation or expectation for where he would be. Verse 44 says they supposed him to be in the caravan. So there is a group of travelers who would go. They would go up together from Nazareth and then they would come back. Every reason to think that he is there. And this is just the way that things were. He's a responsible child. He's not a rebel. They can trust him. This is no big deal until they go a day's journey. And what happens? They start looking for him. It's time to stay overnight. Surely we would expect our son to meet up with us in some way. Except he's not here. And they start looking. He's not there. They begin looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And they didn't find him. Verse 45, when they didn't find him, what do they do? They return to Jerusalem looking for him. 
there's a sense of intense concern and worry here in this, in this word looking. Uh, they're searching him out. They are, they're not just kind of casually saying, well, he's an adult, he's responsible, or he's close enough. They're really, really worried. What happened to Jesus? Is he back there? They don't know where he is. They don't know how he's doing. Maybe he got lost along the way. Maybe he uh, fell alongside the road, and we don't know what happened to him. So they go back to Jerusalem looking for him, and what happens? After three days, after three days, verse 46, look at this. They found him in the temple. Uh, just so you know, as far as the language here, three days may refer to three days from their initial departure, one day gone, one day back, and then another day they find him on that third day or at the end of the third day. Um, or it could be, which I think is more likely, that they had to look for him for quite a while. In any case, this is heart-wrenching for them. But thankfully, they find him. They find him. And where do they find him? Verse 46, but in the temple. They find him in the temple where all these things have been taking place for the last several chapter, last couple of chapters of Luke for the most part. And he is sitting in the middle of the teachers, sitting in the midst of the teachers. Uh, just to give you a picture of what would have been going on here, teachers is a phrase that Luke doesn't use often. In fact, later on when he refers to the plurality of teachers, he's usually referring to scribes or Pharisees or lawyers or someone else. He actually kind of stops calling them teachers and Throughout the rest of the account, Jesus is the one who becomes the teacher. Because he's the one who actually, as it turns out, is going to be teaching the truth to the ones who were willing to listen. And then in contrast to many of the teachers who, as it turns out, during his ministry, were hostile toward the truth of God, despite their claim to actually believe it. Uh, but nonetheless, they were teachers. They evidently were teaching the truth of God in enough accuracy to where Jesus can be listening and learning from them. There's no denigration of the teachers here at this point by Luke. There does seem to be a somewhat positive view of them. Concerning the situation, um, teachers would sit down uh, among their students, with their students, and then there would be a sort of a Q&A. Uh, there, there, this was not just monologue, but there would be interactivity among their students. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He is, it says, both listening to them and asking questions. Jesus, of course, is very engaged in this. You can imagine the scene, right? Jesus is here. He's, living, he's come from a very small town, uh, smaller perhaps even than some of our neighborhoods that we live in in terms of population. Uh, and all the Jews are converged upon this spot. So all of the big shot teachers are here. All the people who know their stuff, they're all converged upon Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. This doesn't just happen every day. I want to go talk with them. And I want to go learn from them. And I want to go discuss these things, these things of God. So Jesus is taking advantage of this opportunity. He is kind of, if you will, like a kid in a candy store. You've ever taken one of your children to a place that has all the stuff that they like and you know how hard it is to get them out of there. You know what this is like. Or maybe not your children, but you, if you're an outdoorsman, the first time you set foot in a Bass Pro Shop and you know you don't want to leave that place for hours or any kind of whatever your interest might be, you know you're just drawn to it. You say, I, this is, it's got everything here, everything. And so they're teaching, he's listening and learning, but it's clear from the text that he knows his stuff. And that's what Luke verse, uh, verse 47 here tells us. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding as, and his answers. This is where 
Thirdly, Jesus displays his amazing understanding. Jesus displays his amazing understanding. Um, Frankly, Jesus just being among the teachers would have been pretty notable because he's 12 years old. Uh, They would have been adults and probably not that young of adults either. But the way that this is described indicates he's not just kind of taking this in. He's not peeking over. He's not on the fringes. But he is in some way very involved. And in one way or another, he is displaying what he knows. He's displaying his knowledge, his wisdom. That's why verse 47 says that others, the people who heard him, were amazed at his understanding. And he was actively putting it on display by virtue, not just of what he asked, but also by how he answered. Uh, It would be one thing to ask smart questions. That alone would be enough to get you this impression. But somehow he's giving answers. And uh, he is showing here that he is sharp. He knows his stuff. He's serious about this. And he is impressive. But the impressiveness of his answers really is not even the main point. This just sets the scene. This just shows us what Jesus knew. And everyone is taken aback by what they see. But it's not just the crowd here. When his parents show up, they are taken aback as well. And here we come to verses 48 through 50 where we will uh, find the main point of this text. Which is that Jesus proclaims his driving purpose. Jesus proclaims his driving purpose. What is Jesus all about what is he here on earth for what is what is in his heart what does he love why did he go to this place why did he stay there why did he stay behind this gives us a window into understanding who Jesus is and this doesn't change from the time that he's 12 to the time that he enters his public ministry some 18 years later Um, this is revealed first of all this driving purpose in response to his questioning from his anxious parents This questioning from his anxious parents. His mother, verse 48, look at what she says. Uh, Every mother here can identify with this. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. You know what it's like when you find your kid and they've been lost or whatever. And, you know, you run up to them and, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And then they say, yeah, I'm okay. You say, now why did you do the thing that you did? There's a little bit of that in here. Maybe not so hostile as we might make it, but he, she's focused on, look, you did this. Why did you do this to us? How could you make us so worried? Why didn't you tell us where you were going? This is the emphasis. This is the focus. It's not about what Jesus is, has going on. She doesn't say, hey, you know, it's pretty interesting that you're in here talking to all of these people and everyone around you seems to recognize what's going on, that you have amazing answers and insight. We're not really worried about this once in a generation or really once in eternity kind of person who's putting himself on display here. We're just worried because you got lost and you didn't tell us where, we've been go- where you were going. There is a, a very myopic view of the situation here. She can't see past the effect that it has upon herself. She says, we have been anxious. We have been looking. Certainly these natural concerns are understandable, but... We know that in God's economy, they can cloud our vision for what matters most. It's really easy to focus only on 
is this person okay? Does this person feel good? When it comes to your children, for example, maybe all you can think about is, are they successful? Are they accepted? Are they happy? Are they finding the things that everyone else wants? When instead the priority ought to be, do they understand who Jesus is? Are they responding to life in the way that God wants them to understand? And it's not just for children. We carry this through all the way into our adulthood. And we say, what matters most? Well, it's that I don't have worry and I don't have anxiety and I don't have fear. You know, my life is full of these troubles. I've got to get rid of these things. And Jesus is going to show her there's much more important stuff than just these things that would otherwise occupy our immediate concern. This is not to say that we rejoice in those things. We don't love when hard things happen in and of themselves. But our concern needs to get out beyond what we can just see right in front of our eyes and see what does God say about this world in which we're living? What does he say he wants us to do with our lives? What is God doing in the church? Or is it just that, you know, somebody took the seat that I normally like? What is God doing through this relationship? Or is there just this kind of thing that I I didn't like the way that person talked to me? You know, these are the kinds of things that we need to think about. We've got to get out above these immediate human concerns and say, what is going on here in light of who Christ is and what he has done? So here, Mary shows up and she says, why did you do this to us? And if it were a kid today, maybe even a snarky one, he might say something like, mom, I'm right in the middle of something. Jesus doesn't respond in that way, but he does say something that tries to reorient them. And he says in verse 49, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? In my father's house. These are the first recorded words of Jesus, the God-man in scripture. The first recorded words that he spoke upon the earth. And they have to do with who he is and what he's all about. And they give us a huge insight into so much about him. What do these words express? Well, they express his relationship toward his heavenly father. His relationship toward his heavenly father. Verse 49, he says, I had to be in my father's house. Now, if I were Joseph, I might say something like, well, let me help you out with that because I'm kind of standing right here in front of you and our house is that way, not right here. So can you come and go back home with us and then you'll be involved in your father's house. Um, He is obviously here drawing a distinction, a contrast between his earthly father and his heavenly father. His earthly father, Joseph, verse 48, he is called that. Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And his heavenly father, God. Now, it's not a problem here for him to, you know be called for Joseph to be called his father. We, we know um, all about the, uh, the conception of Jesus and those things. We, we, understand, um, we understand his nature as the God-man and all of that, but Luke doesn't belabor the point every single time he brings it up to say, well, actually, you know, the one who was kind of thought to be his father. He mentions that in chapter 3. 
uh, verse 23, where he says he was uh, about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. Luke obviously knows about this, but he doesn't have to give that qualifier at every single point. Uh, we would probably do well to follow Luke's example and not always have to qualify every statement we make with every possible caveat that we could. Uh, we understand from the context that he's talking about his human um, adoptive, if you will, father, Joseph. So your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. But Jesus says, I have a father that I am prioritizing. And he speaks here of this not only contrast, but the relationship that he has specifically with his heavenly father. Jesus relates to God the father, not just in the same way that we relate to God as father. We're told to relate to God the father as our heavenly father. We're told to pray in Matthew chapter 6, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're supposed to relate to him as father. We're supposed to cry out, Abba, Father, Romans chapter 8 tells us. But this is not the same thing as God is father and we become his children by salvation. This is a unique fatherly relationship that no one else besides Jesus has. That's why he is about his business in this way. That's why it shouldn't be surprising that he would be involved with his father in this way because he is uniquely the son of the father. And so he, is, he does relate to his father in the same way that we do in one sense, but he relates to him more ways than that. Not only in his role as the Messiah and the appointed son of David, but he relates to him as the second person in the Trinity. He proclaims himself to be the son of the heavenly father. Jesus is called the Son of God from many perspectives, but here he's speaking of the inherent relationship with the Father as the Son, as the Son of God. And so he is here spatially located in the temple as a human being, relating to God the Father as the eternal God, both at the same time in the one person, Jesus Christ. He has a special relationship with God the Father. It is a close relationship. John chapter 5, verse 20 says that the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Jesus prays in John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He is loved by the father. He is glorified together with him. They have been together for all eternity. And now, as the son, he is on the earth and he is seeking him as the God-man. In Luke 3, 22, we'll read, the father speaks out of heaven and says to him, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. There is an intra-Trinitarian, eternal relationship of love between the father and the son, and in fact, among the father, son, and Holy Spirit. And this remains the case, and it is the driving motivation for Jesus Christ to move toward the Father in this way. Now, notice here, how did he pursue this relationship with the Father? How did he pursue him? How did he go about this? Well, there are many ways in which this took place. He would often go off to pray as an adult. He would serve and minister to him. But one of the ways is what's going on here is by going to where the word of God was being taught, where scripture was being discussed. What do the teachers talk about? They talk about doctrine. What is that? Scripture, theology. This is essential. It is required to knowing God. 
Many times people want to pursue a relationship with God and sort of go around or just an entirely different direction outside of knowing theology to try to have a relationship with God. And they find it maybe they think in their feelings or some other way. But Jesus recognizes that though it is possible to learn things and to not know God, it is not possible to know God apart from knowing things about him. You have to know truth. And so Jesus goes to where the truth is being talked about and he sits down among the teachers and he goes about pursuing God by learning and talking and thinking and by discussing him, the things of God. This is a vital part of cultivating relationship with our heavenly father. And so it was for this boy, Jesus. So he relates to his father and he does so in this way. There are are perhaps those who would write off such instructional dialogues as uh, not very practical, not very worshipful. They'd say, Jesus, why don't you just go sing some songs on the other side of the, of the temple where you are? Maybe why don't you go get engaged in the sacrifices? Why are you going to go just learn? Why are you going to just go talk theology? Because that's one vital part of this. All of these things are important. The expression of our worship through various means, whether in the Old Testament, through sacrifices, through music, through song, through fellowship, through obedience. But knowing God requires, not, ex- not only, not exhaustively, but knowing God requires knowing about God, knowing the truth, knowing the Bible, knowing theology. And Jesus understood that. Next, we want to consider not only his relationship toward his heavenly father, but also his engagement in his father's business. His engagement in his father's business. Verse 49 says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's? And then you notice here it says house. And if you have the New American Standard as I do, it is in italics. Some of your versions may render it as affairs. Some of it may render it as business. Uh, and there, the reason why we have to do this is because the word is not even actually there. there. There is no word house. There is no word business. There is no word affairs. Um, it just literally says those things of my father, the things which are of my father. And so various views have been described, two major ones. Uh, one of them is my father's house, as it's translated here. This would make sense in light of the emphasis on the temple in chapters 1 and 2. And of course, what more obvious place would there be to pursue the father than to be in his house, in the temple? Um, and so people say that this may be the father's house. Uh, the other view would be something akin to my father's business or his affairs or the things which have to do with him, the things that he cares about. And I would argue that this is the better option in particular in light of the fact that, uh, he says the things which are of my father, not the thing which is of my father or not that which is of my father singular, but it's plural, And so if he was going to speak about a house, it would probably have to be multiple houses if it would align with the grammar. And all of that to say that I think the New King James is probably the best rendering of this when it says, uh, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? About my father's business. Now, that said, being at the temple was the best way for him at this moment to be about his father's business because this is where all the activity was. So he goes there because... These, this is how he gets involved in what the father is doing, how he, how he talks of him, how he pursues the knowledge of God. What is it then that is the substance of the father's business? What is the substance of the father's business or his 
affairs. What did it mean for Jesus here and later? Well, it meant that he wanted to know God. It meant that he wanted to be about what God is about. It meant that he wanted to think on the things that have to do with his heavenly father. And so it is for us that we ought to want to be about the father's business. We ought to be about what he thinks matters. We ought to cultivate a desire, a hunger for learning about him, knowing about him, and then serving and obeying and meditating upon him as we, as we go away from the active times of learning. We should follow Jesus' example of this, not because we are also the Messiah or the Son of God in the same way as him, but because we are his followers. And of course, we come to church for similar reasons, don't we? Um, it's not because God is at church, so to speak, although he is in certain ways present when the church is gathered in ways that are, uh, that ways that are unique. The Bible calls the church the temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says that when the church is gathered, the spirit of God is not just in us dwelling individually, but the church is among, uh, the spirit of God is among the church in the sense that he indwells us not just individually, but corporately. He indwells us as a whole. God lives in the church. And yet you don't come here just because God is found here in a sort of spatial way and you can't get that out there. It's because God's truth is proclaimed and upheld and practiced and you express your response to that here in ways that are beneficial. And then you leave and you put them into practice. And so it is when Jesus was about his father's business, he did so on this occasion by going to the temple. But for us, we can be about the father's business in many ways One major one of which is, of course, gathering with the body of Christ to make sure that this is what drives us at every moment as we see other people doing the same thing, as we learn the truth together, as we're held accountable with one another, as we serve one another, and as we serve a common purpose and mission in the world. So Jesus was about his father's business. He was engaged in his father's business. He came to the earth to do the things that God was all about, and that is why he ended up where he did. But beyond this... We also find in this text, in verse 49, Jesus' pursuit, his pursuit of his messianic purpose. His pursuit of his messianic purpose, which is to say, why am I here on the earth? Do you think that I was just born, Mary and Joseph, mother and father, to live a life like anyone else? Do you think that I just came here to do only what you have for me that you would come up with on your own? And the answer is no. He has a higher purpose than just that, and it has been given to him by God, and it has been the reason for which he was sent in the first place. In fact, this was compelling to him and required that he would do this. What does it say in verse 49? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I had to be. Uh, The word literally is, it is necessary. It is necessary for me to be about my father's business. This is a requirement and an obligation here upon him, but it's not just external constraint. There is an internal compulsion that Jesus has. I had to do this because God sent me here to do this, but I had to do it because this is who I am. Jesus is about doing what the father sent him to do. Jesus is about pursuing God. He is about pursuing the Father. Now, notice that he is not uncontrollably pulled. He, when he says, I had to be about this, he doesn't mean that he's going to stay there and he is doing this against his will in some way and that he is incapable of doing anything else because 
in verse 51, it says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. So Jesus is willing to do what his parents say. But there was a particular occasion where he said, look, I am here to do what God sent me to do. And this is at this moment in time, in this place, the expression of what God wants that to look like. So he is constrained to do this. There was for him an irresistible pull toward his father. Picture a very, very strong magnet that as soon as you let it go, it just is drawn toward the metal object. He can't do anything else. He loves the father. He wants to be with him. It is as instinctual to him as any instinct is to any creature that has ever existed. And so this is something where he was compelled to do this. It was required as part of his messianic mission to go and to begin to do this in this way. But it was something that he desired as part of his identity as the Messiah. It is necessary for him to pursue this purpose. It also shows the priority that Jesus has of the Father's business, the priority of his purpose on earth, over and above going back to Jerusalem, over and above not worrying his family, over and above just getting back to the tasks of the, of the week when he got home. He prioritized his mission and his knowledge of the Father. Jesus has this pull toward his heavenly Father because of his great love and because of the purpose for which he was sent. And not only is this a necessity and is it his priority? But it's also the proper thing, the fitting thing for him to do. I want you to note it's propriety. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? He says, why were you looking for me? He says, this shouldn't have been surprising to you. Don't you know who I am? Don't you remember the prophecies that the angel gave to you? Don't you remember that I am going to be called the son of the most high God? Don't you remember that I'm going to save my people from their sins? Don't you remember these things that you've been told, mom and dad? Why are you surprised that the Son of God, miraculously brought into the world, would want to go and to be about the things of God? Why does this surprise you? But they had lost sight of this. When we come to be Christians, sometimes it upends our lives in ways that um, would bother people around us. You know, Mary didn't like that Jesus had gone to do this. And certainly there are ways where we can do this in uh, foolish and obnoxious kind of ways, um, unwise kind of ways where we become Christians and then uh, we, don't really, we don't really pursue Christ in ways that are beneficial toward all that the scripture says. And so we might start to speak evil of people around us who are not Christians because we understand that we, when we were not believers, were in rebellion against God. And so we start to go beyond what scripture says and instead of simply identifying the fact that they're in sin and that they need to turn to God for their sins and their rebellion against God, we start to think less of them and to slander them and to exalt ourselves above them. Or we might dissociate ourselves from them completely, not because we are in danger of following them into their sin, but simply because we just kind of have an ick about it or we just don't really feel like being with them. So there are ways in which we can prioritize the things of God that might end up being unhelpful toward the cause of the gospel and unnecessary biblically. But it is true that there will be things when, that happen when you come to Christ that may not make sense to people around you who aren't following the Lord. And so it was here. And he says, what, don't you get who I am? I am seeking the things of the Father. And we ought to be able to have some things in our life where maybe people around us think, well, I wouldn't do that. But it makes perfect sense if they understand that we're Christians and these are biblical things. Why do you, why do you get so involved with the church? I don't understand. Why are you there on Sundays? 
and Wednesdays and other times too? Why do you do that kind of thing? Why do you feel like you have to read your Bible so much? Why are you talking about theology? We're not actually talking about this. Or why do you have a problem with this kind of thing? It's just a little, you know, it may not be a sin. It's just kind of a little thing. Why, do you, why are you so concerned about that? Again, we can go overboard in enforcing our standards upon others that are extra biblical standards, but that's not the point. The point is that sometimes people are going to be surprised at things that, if we understand the Bible, are just the things that Christians do. And we should follow them anyway, just as Jesus Christ did. One other thing to note here in verse 49 is Jesus' awareness. Jesus' awareness. His parents don't understand what's going on. They ask him this, why, why, why have you done this to us? But Jesus gets it. He knows who he is. He, uh, he, has, he has come to this knowledge. Jesus is not ignorant about himself being the son of God and he's not ignorant of the fact that he is the Messiah and he knows what he's about um, and no one should be surprised when he does these things he gets it but his parents don't and that leads us to our final point this morning which is his parents failure to understand verse 50 his parents failure to understand now you would maybe be able to go with this if uh, they didn't understand before he told them this. But they seem just as confused afterward. Maybe more so. He says, uh, it says in verse 50, did, they didn't understand the statement which he made to them. Jesus says, didn't you know that I should be about this? And Jesus is in a sense confused by them. Don't you get it? Don't you understand this? And yet they still don't know. It didn't click. What is it that they don't understand? Well, they don't understand what a Messiah would do when he comes. They've never seen one before. They don't know that the Messiah is going to go to the temple and be all about this. They had all the prophecies, yes. They had all of this stuff, but they're not, things are not clicking for them. And this would not be the last time that someone around Jesus just didn't understand the things he said. Not because the words were incomprehensible, but because they didn't understand and connect the meaning to the real situation in front of them. They were spiritually blinded in a certain, in a certain sense. Jesus says, you think you're going to take me to Jerusalem and I won't be pulled into this? And they say, we don't get it. We don't understand. They didn't understand the statement which he had made to them. They didn't grasp what he came to do. They didn't understand all that he was and really the full significance of who he is. And I wonder as we close this morning, if you yourself are making the same mistake or if you realize who Jesus is. Maybe you have grown up knowing about Jesus and you know that he's a Jew that lived in Nazareth and he ministered publicly for three years and the Bible is written about him and there's an entire religion built up around him called Christianity. Maybe you know those things. Maybe you even would ascribe as a follower of those things. What I'm saying is, do you realize who he is as the son of God? Do you realize that Christ is not just a last name and not just a title of Messiah, but it actually has a significance for why he came into the world? He has the authority over all. He is the one who came to be the sacrifice for sins, and he's the one who will one day come to rule the nations, and he's the one that we must put our hope in. We must have allegiance to. Do you understand that he came into the world because you needed to have your sins forgiven? He didn't just come into the world to grow up and have a good story and to give us some moral principles. Instead, Jesus came to save people from their sins, and you and I and everyone else needs that. Do you understand who Jesus is? If you do know who he is, if you've been saved, if you are a believer, then praise God for his grace to you. 
And that he has come to, a, you've come to an understanding that many in his time did not have. But if you don't, please talk to me or anyone else here who knows Christ so that you can know the salvation that Christ provides. And you can understand who Jesus is in truth so that you might not miss him as many did in his day, but instead that you might receive all the saving benefits that he provides. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you for this, uh, this insight into Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to be about Christ and his business just as he was about that of the Father. We pray that you would honor him and glorify him and glorify your name through doing that among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.